0: All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. A day we can come together to worship you. A day we can uh, give you praise. And Lord, um, the opportunity to be able to hear your word and, and to be at your feet. And Lord, I just pray your spirit would speak to us, Lord God. Remind us of your faithfulness and goodness. And We lift this time up to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, believe it or not, yeah, we are approaching the end of Mark. Hopefully it's been a good uh, a blessing for you. Um, and so it's been a journey uh, in Mark. Uh, I don't know if you remember, back in September... Back in Mark chapter 8, if you're with us, I posed, or we looked at a passage that Jesus posed the most important question that you can answer. Y'all remember what that question was? How many of you remember what that question was? The most important question to answer. Jesus posed it to his disciples, and it's still today the most important question that we can answer for ourselves. Who remembers what that question was or is? Got one. Anyone else? Jesus posed a question to the disciples, and really it's kind of a two-part question, but he posed, he first asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say I am? And that question is still the most important question that we could answer in our lives today, because that question has eternal ramifications. It's not just the here and now, it's just not a question of convenience, but it concerns our eternity, how we see the rest of our life, how we answer that question, who is Jesus, but also, who is Jesus to me? Now, I imagine most of us here or most of us who are watching, you're a part of Generations, I would say most of us probably share the same response. We answer the question the same way. I say most of us. But I can't take for granted that some of us here may not answer the same way. You may not have the same response. You're still kind of still trying to figure it out. You're still trying to struggle with your faith. You're still trying to reconcile who is Jesus, Do I believe in Jesus? And who is Jesus to me? Right? You may still be wrestling with that, that thought, that question. You may have been coming every Sunday and you're still kind of wondering, is all this stuff true? Is it real? Should I believe it? Well, I want to encourage you and say, if it's an issue of whether Jesus is real, let me just tell you, there's no true like credible debate as to whether Jesus existed. Okay? Even schol- uh, secular scholars will admit and have to come to the conclusion that Jesus truly existed. He's real. And even beyond that, there's no real legitimate debate that Jesus really was crucified. There's no no real debate about that. There's enough evidence and proof to say Jesus truly lived. Jesus truly was crucified. But the real issue, right, if you kind of put a spectrum of, like, faith, like, from one end of the spectrum is absolute rejection to the other side of the spectrum, absolute faith, right? Saving faith, you're, you're secure, you, you understand Jesus as Lord and Savior. Somewhere, if you find yourself along that spectrum, you're not quite sure what you believe, you're not quite sure how much of the truth that you should believe in, whether you're all in, or whether you're trying to figure out what part of the truth that I want to believe. Wherever you fall on the line, I hope in this time, in this passage that we look at today, you would at least consider what Jesus was going through. That you'll be able to grasp the experience of what jesus went through leading up to the cross and i think if we if we can do that i believe that we're going to be able to connect in a way that we can all kind of relate to and certainly understand all right here let me do this all right is that a little better okay Now, I mentioned last week about how like a good story, right? A good story is one that you can connect with, right? That you can relate to. And I believe that in, in the time that this passage that we're gonna look like, I look at today, I think we're gonna be able to connect in a very relatable way. I don't know how many of you experienced. Deep loneliness. You don't have to raise your hands. But how many of us can relate to the experience of deep loneliness? Or how about deep heartache or sorrow? How many of you can relate to, you've, you can anticipate you're going to go through extreme physical pain and distress? Maybe you can, you can relate to that. You know you're about to go through some deep physical pain or distress. How many of us here can relate to the feeling of abandonment? The people closest in your life is nowhere to be found. Or you can relate to the experience of betrayal. Betrayal. Right? I, I, I would venture to guess most of us, if not all of us, to some degree has experienced something along those lines. And we're going to see that Jesus shows us a lot in this passage. And it's interesting that all four Gospels include Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane that we're going to look at today. You think, well, why is that significant? Well, if you think about if someone is to write a biography about somebody, right? And you get four people to write a biography about one individual. If you could get four people and write a unique perspective about that individual, right? You may have some commonalities that they, they include, but also some differences. But if four, all four include the same or a similar experience or a, a same moment in time, what does that tell you? There's something significant about this moment, right? That all four are going to include. And so we're going to take a look at that that passage and that moment today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 27. And I want you to capture the mood of what is taking place. Mark 14, verse 27 it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. We, we know that Jesus had already revealed to the twelve disciples that they're all going to betray him. Or there's going to be one of them, right? One of the twelve was going to betray them, betray him. And we know from within that context that Luke tells us, Jesus just reveals this shocking news to his most closest followers that one of you is going to betray me. And we know from Luke's account that in that context of what Jesus reveals to them, they, they re-dig re, uh, up a familiar debate among themselves. You know what they debate amongst themselves? which one of them is going to be the greatest, right? So even within that context, they still can't get over this idea, well, which one is the greatest, right? In this passage in verse 27, we see that Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. And then we've learned throughout Mark that when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he's not just pulling a quote to meet his current needs, right? A, a point that he's getting across. There's also a context that he will allude to with that reference. And it's interesting that we see in, in Zechariah 13:7 7, where, where um, Zechariah brings up what God is saying, that he will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But what's interesting in verses 8 and 9, God declares that a remnant... Of his people will be refined as silver and tested as gold, and that they will call on the name of the Lord. And once again, they will be his people, and he will be their God. So it's interesting in this context. God reveals to Zechariah, "I'll strike my shepherd, and my people will scatter like sheep." But he'll have a, rem- a remnant who will call him their God and he will call them his people again. So God is going to bring this restoration, faithfulness. And so in this moment, though, when Jesus mentions this quote, Jesus describes what will take place. That not only one of them will betray him, but that they will all be made to stumble They'll be made to stumble. You will all fall away. So he's not just saying one of you is going to betray me, but he says you will all be made to stumble. That word to be made to stumble, we've seen this in Mark before. Sorry, I'm going to have to juggle with two hands here. We'll see if we can manage this and not fumble this uh, all service. But this term to fall away, we've seen this in Mark before. It means to be put a stumbling block an impediment, one who stumbles, okay? We've seen this four times in Mark. In the first one, we saw it in Mark 4, 17, in that parable of the soils, right? Remember the four soils? And he describes the rocky soil. The rocky soil is one where the seed gets planted and it doesn't, is not able to produce deep roots because the soil is full of rocks, And so when the sun comes down, the heat comes, although it starts to produce something, because of the heat and the lack of deep roots, it withers away. And Jesus says, it's like those people whose hearts are like a rocky soil. When the heat comes, they stumble, they fall away. So Jesus describes, so in a moment of heat, they are going to be, all be made to stumble. Now, it's interesting, let's not overlook that Jesus declares that here, he also says he will be raised and will go before them in Galilee. So Jesus doesn't just tell them it's all doomsday, you're going to all stumble and fall away. But he ends and he tells them, but when I rise, right? He gives us hope that I will rise again. I will come again. I will see you again in Galilee. Verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that you yourself this very night before rooster crows twice shall deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, you got to love Peter. I love Peter because he's so relatable, you know? Think of your lowest moment in your life. Think about the lowest moment in your life. Perhaps it was the most embarrassing, right? Maybe it's the most painful, maybe the most shameful, most regrettable moment. I don't know if you could think of a moment like that in your life. Right? The most embarrassing, shameful, regretful, painful moment in your life. Can you imagine that's the one moment that is repeated by like you are known for? That wouldn't feel good. You know what I mean? I would hope that that's not the moment that when everyone meets me, would say, oh, yeah, Mike. You know what I think of when Mike, I think of that worst moment, right? Peter, I imagine, I imagine, I imagine he believed, because if there's a discussion of who's going to be the greatest among the 12, I imagine Peter thought, it's me. I'm the greatest among all of you, right? I imagine Peter probably felt that way. He was the greatest disciple among them. And he boldly declares, Indeed, Jesus, if all will fall away, all these guys, yeah, I can see him do it. I can see him do it. I know he's going to do it. I will not. Not me. I will not fall away. I will not be made to stumble. I imagine bold, confident Peter defying this notion that he will be made to stumble when the heat comes. I'm not running away from the heat. These guys might, not me. I'm sure we would all want to think that we'd be like Peter, right? Wouldn't we all want to be able to say we would be like Peter and respond to Peter like, like he does? When the heat comes in our life, when trials come in our life, we want to be able to say, Lord, a weaker person would crumble, but not me. Not my faith. I'm going to stand strong. Well, Jesus gives Peter an even greater shock. He says, before the night is over, before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. Now, keep in mind, this is already late in the night. The next day is when the sun rises, right? So we're talking about a span of hours And so Jesus tells Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Can you understand the shock of this? Jesus just told Peter that he's going to deny even knowing him before evening is over. You're going to deny me even You're going to deny even having connection with me. Can you, can you grasp that? First off, Peter hearing this, if I was Peter, I'd be offended, right? Wouldn't you be offended if someone that you were close with would say, you know what? You're going to deny even knowing me. That's pretty offensive. Parents, can you imagine... Can you imagine if your kids, among other people, they saw you and said, oh, no, no, I don't know who that is. That's not my mom and dad. (laughs) No, 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 somebody else. You got it all wrong. Can you imagine the hurt mom and dad? Kids, can you imagine that? Can you imagine you're among people and your parents that look at you and say, oh, no, no, that's not my kid. (laughs) No, 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 they're not my kid. Uh, My kid's uh, not here right now. Can you imagine how that would feel if your parents denied even knowing you, being connected with you? Spouses, can you imagine if your husband or your wife deny knowing you, being connected with you? Your closest friends at school you're walking with your closest friend and a certain group comes up and then you just, well, you don't want to be caught with that person? Oh yeah, You know, I got to go. I don't want to be connected with you. There, we're talking some deep, painful moments here. But it's not only just once. Jesus says three times, Peter, you're going to deny me. Well, this doesn't sit well with Peter, as you can, uh, you can imagine. And he insistently, repeatedly declares, If necessary, I will go to prison for you. I will die with you. I will not deny you. And all the others said the same. Yeah, none of us will. Yeah, we won't either, right? Verse 32. And they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Sit here until I have prayed." And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, "My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch." So Jesus arrives at Gethsemane with the 11. If you remember, Judas already has went away to betray Jesus to the chief priests. So he tells eight of the 11 for them to stay there, and he takes Peter, James, and John further on. If you remember, these are the same three that he took with them up to the mountain when he was transfigured, right? But listen to the description of Jesus in this moment. He says he began to be very Distressed. That word for distress means to throw into terror or amazement. To be struck with terror. Now, this word only appears in Mark in the New Testament. And I think we can assume within the context with the description of the other words that describes Jesus, he's not struck by amazement. I think the better understanding is that Jesus was struck with terror. This feeling of terror came upon him. It also says he was troubled. Notice he was under great distress or anguish. I don't know how many of us can relate to their feeling of deep distress and anguish. It says that he was deeply grieved, exceedingly sorrowful, overcome with sorrow to the point where it's like, I can't take it anymore. I don't know if I can live any longer carrying and feeling this sorrow. Jesus was experiencing great anguish, Distress, terror, sorrow to the point of death. This is all what Jesus was experiencing leading up to the betrayal, the arrest, and eventual crucifixion. You know, many speculate why Jesus experienced such distress. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking about it in context. The first thing I thought of was that I cannot imagine the thought of the brutal physical beating and method of death that he was about to experience. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine knowing what he is about to go through. Just the physical pain alone. Crucifixion was a most brutal method, sentence of death but he was going to go through even more leading up to it. I can't imagine knowing what I'm going to face. But even more so, adding to that, this feeling and this sense of betrayal, this sense of abandonment, that's just from a human perspective, right? Add to that, knowing that you are going to bear the sins of the world, on that cross. We'll get to more of that as we approach the cross. Let's go to verse 35. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou will. Luke specifies Jesus just went a stone's throw away from the three. So he didn't go very far away. But he says that Jesus falls to the ground. Matthew describes that Jesus fell on his face and begins to pray. I don't know how many of you have ever prayed where you just fell on your face. There were times when I can recall where I fell on my face in prayer. And in those moments, in those times, there was either a moment of desperation or distress. I remember a great brokenness, a time where I'm so broken that all I can do is just fall on my face before God. I can think of one moment of desperation where I fell on my face and pray. It's kind of embarrassing, but I'm going to share with you because I want to be transparent, okay? First child, Caitlin, was being born during delivery. Long story short, during labor, there was complications. Every time it was about to be delivered, her heart rate went down. One of Jamie and I's favorite shows in those days was ER. And one of the best episodes of ER was when a woman who is giving birth dies in birth. So I was freaking out. I'm a young guy. And I was a young guy then. I am just. Kidding. I was young at the time. And all I could think of, what is going to happen to Jamie and the baby? So they had to rush her to emergency C-section. And they wheeled her out. And I just started crying. And I fell right on the ground and I was just, face down, and just praying to God. And I can hear in the background over me, there's someone who's above me saying, what's wrong with that guy? (laughs) I said, I'm just praying. I'm just praying. When you pray with your face to the ground, that is a posture of desperation, of brokenness, of humility, anguish, shame, submission, even fear. And it's interesting, we see throughout Mark how many people bowed down and kneeled down before Jesus because they needed help. And here we see Jesus kneeling down before the Father. See, in my mind, this moment is the most human portrayal of Jesus while still understanding he is the eternal Son of God. It's interesting, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Jesus' prayer to the Father. In Matthew, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou will. We saw in Mark, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And then in Luke 22, he says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will. But your will be done. It's interesting. Jesus prays if there's any way, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. We have never seen so much as a crumb of reluctance in anything Jesus did in his ministry. Here the Son acknowledges, Father, All things are possible. He knows it's not about ability, but rather the Father's will. Yet he knows God chose this as the means of salvation, reconciliation, atonement, redemption, forgiveness, restoration. All those things is made possible. Through what Christ is going to go through. Yet in this moment, Jesus prays that most difficult prayer. If there's any other way, but he doesn't end with that. He doesn't end with just simply, God, if there's any other way, please, 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 please. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus doesn't just pray this once. Verse 37, And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, or he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. While Jesus speaks to all three, he specifically mentions Simon Peter. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me. Is at hand. Now, I've read this passage many times. But there's one thing that stands out this time around that I never, you know, I didn't give as much attention to. And that is, why did Jesus go back to the disciples repeatedly, three, three times? Why did Jesus have to go back to these disciples? When Jamie and I, you know, when we get a moment to spend some time together and we watch a movie or watch a show, it's usually at night. So, that usually means when we start watching the show, I'm gonna be out in like five minutes. I'm gonna knock out. And every time we try watching a show, what she does is, Mike, are you awake? Stay awake.
1: Watch this, it's getting
0: good. Stay awake. Mike, are you awake? And she will repeatedly have to check on me to make sure I'm awake. Why does she do that? Right? She does it so that we can enjoy this, whatever we're watching together, right? Eventually, a lot of times, she will know, like, you know what, let's just turn it off. You're not staying awake. Or she'll say, you know what, let's not even get started, because I know you're not going to stay awake. See, if I was Jesus, probably, it would probably only take me once for me to see them. It's like, forget it. They're not staying awake. But he went back and back. It's interesting. Despite his pain and sorrow, he did not forget his disciples, especially Peter. Luke tells us that Satan wanted to shake Peter up. Jesus tells Peter, Satan has wanted to shake you up so that you would be made to stumble and fall, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Isn't that interesting? I think many of us wonder why we experience such hardship. And a lot of us think, is God testing my faith? Why is God testing my faith? Well, I think there's a difference. I, d- I think there's a difference between the intent of what we're going through is the test, from the test itself just by nature tests our faith. I don't think every, every obstacle and adversity we go through is because God is testing us. I don't think that's the intent. But I think the adversity we go through just may test our faith. You see the difference? It's not because God intends to test our faith, necessarily, but that the adversity itself tests our faith. But what I do believe for certain is that the enemy wants to shake our faith as we struggle. And God wants our faith to be proven true. So he goes to the disciples says, keep awake, keep praying, don't get caught unaware, don't fall into temptation. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he wanted those three to stay awake. Be alert, keep praying. I find it interesting, Jesus' exhortation to these disciples is very simple. Be always praying, always watching. That's what he tells them in that moment. Keep praying, keep watching. I find it interesting, Jesus' warning to pray and watch, because it suggests that that might have helped them in the moments, right? He tells them, keep watching, keep praying, so that you don't fall into temptation. It seems to suggest that if they kept praying, kept watching, it may have helped them in that moment to stay faithful, to stay strong. Now, I believe everything happened as it was supposed to happen. But I believe that they would all look back in that moment when they didn't keep praying, they didn't keep watch, and that they would stay faithful. See what I'm saying? I believe those disciples would remember that moment when Jesus was trying to tell them to keep praying, keep watching, so you don't fall into temptation. And later they realized, you know what? We did not keep praying. We did not keep watching. And that set the course of their faithfulness later on. I want to go back real quick to Jesus' prayer. He prayed this, Not my will, but your will be done. This implies Jesus, in the moment, wished there was another way, right? He's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I know all things are possible. If it's possible, we know in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that was before Jesus was not the physical pain that he's going to go through was not the betrayal. That wasn't his joy. His joy was, a, he knew what was going to come out of it. Right? Our salvation, our reconciliation to the Father, the joy was our forgiveness, that we can have relationship with God. But I love, this is just so, I don't know about you, but it, it strikes me. Because the next time we face a situation in which our will does not line up with God's will, what will we pray? We can't claim, God, you just don't understand what I'm going through. How many of us prayed that before, right? We feel the deep sorrow. We feel like we're the only one who's experiencing what we're experiencing. We're being betrayed. We're being left alone. We're feeling the shame. We're feeling all these things. And sometimes we feel like, God, I don't think you understand. And this moment that Jesus experiences truly shows us. I don't think we could ever say, God, you just don't understand. But what we can see is the prayer of the Son. Father, not my will, but your will be done. I think, you know, this thought hit me uh, this week. And I could be guilty of this, maybe even in the pulpit. Sometimes we portray our desires always in contradiction with God's desires, right? And I may have said that, you know, we don't want to give it to our desires, but God's desires, Right? And sometimes we can portray that as a constant polarization. It's either God's desires or our desires. And so we have to always deny our desires. And that's not the goal. The goal is that our desires are God's desires. That we won't always find ourselves in such conflict with God's desires because what our desires is going to be... God's desires right and we see that in Jesus's prayer here he says no matter what I'm feeling right now your will be done of course Jesus knows what he's about to go through and what must be done not my will but your will be done your will be done That hit me this week. In our time of prayer, in our time of affliction and sorrow and all those things that we experience in times of temptation, what is our prayer? What do we pray for? Can we humbly say, God, this is what I hope for. I hope, I wish I didn't have to go through this. But Lord, let your will be done. Let your will be done. In your time of sorrow and grief, even in temptation, take what Jesus says to the disciples in that moment. Also, He says, "Keep keep praying, keep watching." In those moments, whatever we're experiencing right now, keep praying. Keep watching. Why do I say keep watching? If you keep watching, you may see God is intervening in ways that you may not realize. And even in your struggle and suffering, even in your pain, even in the battle of temptation, keep praying, keep watching, because God may be doing things that you don't realize, He sees you. He knows you. Next week, we'll see Jesus' betrayal unfold. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, we're humbled by your prayer in the garden. You knew what you were going to bear. You knew what you were going to go through. And even in that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. You teach us, Lord God. You teach us in humility. You teach us in complete submission. You teach us to say, Lord, we want your will to be done. We thank you for your gift of salvation. Restoration and forgiveness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.